The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we are offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership to the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership at the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to seeing you at the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, I'm Yami. Well, I should say good evening. I'm Yami Shalsender, anchor and moderator of Washington Week on PBS and the White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour. I'm delighted to be moderating tonight's virtual event at the Commonwealth Club of California. I want to welcome, of course, Carol Lennig, an investigative reporter for the Washington Post, and Philip Rucker, senior Washington correspondent for the Washington Post. Both of you have done incredible work on this book. I'm so um, honored to be moderating this event. Um, Together, you've, of course, written this explosive and I would say best-selling um, new book, I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's Catastrophic Final Year. Carol and Phil, welcome. Um, I want to start by going right into the into the heart of this and going a bit broad at first. What made you want to write this book and what surprised you as you were reporting? We, of course, all had, had covered former President Trump together, but obviously you got new details revealing things about the former president. Um, either of you can take it. I, I'm wondering what made you want to write this book and, and what surprised you? I think it's a really good question because Phil and I uh, wrote a book about the first two and a half years of the Trump presidency, and we were pretty exhausted from that and pretty beat and tired. Uh, we didn't envision writing another book. We feel like we kind of uh, stuck the landing in terms of describing what motivates Donald Trump, what uh, what being inside the room with him was like, how he made decisions. We felt like we got a good window into the you know, fairly chaotic and impulsive way that presidency was running. But, you know, just, you know it better than we do, Yamish, that that year of 2020 was so um, stunning, so consequential, so lethal. Uh, we kind of knew, uh, probably by, I would say, late spring, early summer, we knew we were going to have to return to this subject and, and make sense of it. We were, as, as you and Phil did even more than I did, um, covering this presidency in real time. And it was pretty uh, pell-mell, a, a roller coaster you were holding on to. And we knew we needed to understand why it had gone, this roller coaster at least, had gone so badly off the rails. Um, I think your other question is one we'll we'll spend the whole evening answering. What were we shocked by? I think the biggest takeaway Phil and I have agreed is is that we had no idea how hair on fire panicked some of his closest, most ardent advisors and deputies were. These were not far flung members of the cabinet or somebody off in the Department of State. These were people working hand in glove with the president, wanting to achieve his agenda and very nervous and worried about how, I should say, the degree to which he was willing to put American lives and the democracy in peril for his holy grail, maintaining his grip on power and being reelected. 
And Phil, over to you. What made you, um, of course, Carol has, has really laid out the motivations here, but I want to give you a chance to also um, answer the question, what really motivated you? I remember being so exhausted after 2020. What motivated you to write this book? Well, um, first of all, let me just say it's great to be with you guys. And Carol and I were in San Francisco at the Commonwealth Club uh, back in, in early 2020, right before the pandemic, to talk about a very stable genius. And it was one of the highlights of our book tour. And you guys have a beautiful facility and a gorgeous roof view. And today in Washington, it's like 99% humidity and thunderstorming. And I just so wish we could all be uh, on that stage with you guys in person. But uh, such is life. So here we are. Um, to answer your question, Yamish, I, you know, Carol, I think spoke really well for both of us, but um, I would just add that, you know, when we were covering the Trump presidency day to day, and and there was just so much news in 2020, that word by, and, and, you know, we kept having questions to try to figure out what was going on behind the scenes. But then the next day, there'd be another crisis and another story and you'd forget what your question was even about. Um, and it just, by the by the end of 2020, I felt this physical exhaustion from covering the White House beat and from sitting through those press conferences and those nasty tirades um, from the president and the Rose Garden. And, and you, Yamish, dealt with more of that than I did, but it, we were in there together. Um, but it still felt like those questions were unanswered and there was more to learn and more to ferret out and sort of a deeper excavation that needed to be done. And um, the, the book is really a format to do that. This is history. And this was a chance for, you know, after Trump left office, after his cabinet members left Washington, a chance to go back to some of those people and, and do the kind of in-depth reporting that was impossible to do in real time and, and, and figure things out, uncover some new truths about Trump. Um. And Carol, you described this uh, 2020 as a sort of roller coaster. I, I want to take you into the interview that you did, though, with former President Trump. You talked, you and Phil, to him for two and a half hours in the lobby of Mar-a-Lago. Tell me a little bit about why the president wanted to meet you in that lobby and what it was like to sit there for two and a half, for two hours and 45 minutes after his presidency has ended and see him sort of still be treated like he was president. Uh, I'm glad you're taking us to that scene because Phil and I were a combination of um, pinching ourselves that he spent that amount of time with us. We we're pretty pleased uh, at the amount of time that a principal gives you in an interview, um, but also kind of gobsmacked at the, the, the yarn he was spinning about 2020 in which he was the best president ever. But to the scene, I think that you know, we were seated in the lobby. I couldn't believe that we were going to do an interview in the lobby at Mar-a-Lago. It's a beautiful um, mansion, uh, absolutely gorgeous, beautifully appointed. But the lobby doesn't seem like the right place for these kinds of serious questions. And it dawned on us as we saw the dinner guests arriving and realizing that we were asked to come literally at the start sort of of dinner hour and all the club members are filing by. They're also trying to pay their respects to the the dawn of the um, of the castle, and they're coming over sort of obsequiously to say hello to him, Laura Ingraham, you know, waving and telling him, you know, to tune into her program. She'd have something on there that he would love. Um, 
Dan Crenshaw, a congressman looking for Donald Trump's endorsement, telling him how how healthy and hale he looked and what was his secret. Um, Kimberly Guilfoyle, uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend, coming over very meekly to sort of plead with Donald Trump to come and say hello to her friends and her guests at the table. So all of those people filing by, we're seeing, you know, national reporters still here trying to get the words of Donald Trump. Now, of course, you know better than anybody that Donald Trump craves an audience. I I, I think that we were there because he wanted to get his word out, as he said, but he also wanted us to see him in his castle where they still play Hail the Chief as he walks out onto the patio for dinner. Um, And he's given a standing ovation and he wanted other people to see us there as well, seeking his audience. What a, what a scene. Um, I I wrestled with what to start with, but I I couldn't not start with this idea of him still being treated like a president. I want to now turn to COVID. Um, There's a lot in this book and there are a lot of riveting details. And I'm going to try to get to some of the greatest things in the book. But because we're having this conversation in the middle of another surge and there are 600,000 Americans dead, I want to ask you, Phil... Why did the president decide to downplay this virus? What about your reporting showed why, even though the president almost died from this virus, even though he was vaccinated pretty early on, he chose to mix politics and science? Phil, what did your reporting tell you about that decision? Yamish, it's a really important, uh, important topic here. You know, our reporting for the book showed that from day one of the arrival of the coronavirus pandemic, Trump was fixated on his political standing. And what I mean by that is his poll numbers. And November 3rd, Election Day, was on the horizon. And he made every decision related to the pandemic, you know, what he was going to say rhetorically about the the severity of the threat, whether he was going to advocate for people to wear masks, whether he was going to promote miracle cures, how much he would pressure the FDA, and so on and so forth. All of those decisions uh, were based on a political calculation. And it was for Trump all about, you know, how can he make the voters feel like he deserves another term and like this pandemic is under control. And so what he imagined to be the solution for him was happy talk to basically try to sell a product to people to make the country feel like the pandemic wasn't that bad it wasn't really killing as many people as the numbers say uh you don't have to wear your mask you're going to be just fine everything's going great just come out and vote trump on november 3rd well those tricks the, the the kind of salesman uh, charismatic tricks that he mastered in real estate and in reality television uh, did not work when it came to a lethal pandemic. And he didn't believe the science. In fact, he went out of his way to try to discredit the scientists at the government, people like Dr. Fauci, who were trying to help the country and help you know turn tide on this pandemic. And it had deadly consequences. You know, hundreds of thousands of people died on Trump's watch. That's not to say if Trump had handled the pandemic differently, there wouldn't have been any deaths. Certainly this was a was a lethal virus and, and was gonna, you know, kill people here. Uh, but a lot of the experts we talked to thought Trump made it worse um, by not accepting reality and by by effectively waging a campaign of disinformation uh, with the public. Mm. Um, and Carol, at the corner of my eye, I saw you nodding your head. I want to go to you because President Trump, or former President Trump, was also furious that the vaccines were not approved before the election, you write. Talk a little bit about why 
former President Trump played along with anti-vaxxers knowing full well that he also was trying to rush this this vaccine. Explain explain his thinking there. You know, it is it's this amazing riddle that it, that needs more sunlight on it, needs more spotlight and focus. So it's good that you do. His messages are inconsistent. Um, they don't follow the science. They don't follow what's good for public health. And they don't follow each other. So, for example, during his presidency, as we report, he was putting incredible pressure on his health agencies to deliver a vaccine. Why? Because he wanted to announce that he'd provided this miracle. He provided this, you know, points on the board um, before the election was held. He was, as you said, absolutely livid that the approvals were finally announced after his election. He believed it was a conspiracy to stop him from being reelected. He blamed the manufacturers, the huge big pharma companies. He blamed his employees, his senior health officials. Um, but now the presidency's over. He was not reelected. And he's still trying to build, again, his political goodwill and base and, and stoke anything that feeds that base and, and makes them affirmed and makes them turn to him. And so before it was, let's get the vaccine so I can keep those people voting for me. And now it's, let's stoke concern and distrust of Biden and the vaccine so that. I reap the benefits politically. Now, of course, I want to emphasize rightly that um, we can't be in Donald Trump's head, but we know his playbook <laughs> from interviewing the people who were at his shoulders um, day in and day out, and it's uh, extrapolation. But that seems to make sense about why is he saying the opposite thing of what he was saying before? It'd be so easy for him to take credit for the vaccine because he did... <laughs> you know, improperly, but he did pressure the heck out of his agencies to get it delivered to market soon. And um, he deserves some credit for that. And a follow-up question on that. Where do you think the president sees his ability to impact people now? We've seen a bunch of GOP voices come out um, really with new enthusiasm for the COVID vaccines. Does he does he think that he, can, he should and, and it can be influential? in terms of getting more more Americans vaccinated when we see conservatives, red states being the hardest hit um, and the people who are, who are mostly unvaccinated? You know, Yamish, I think there's been real mixed messaging from Trump, uh, you know, over the course of the last year with the vaccine, but especially in the last few weeks, because we've seen him uh, advance an argument that people are afraid to take the vaccine because they don't trust President Biden. Uh, and yet it's the vaccine that Trump wants to take credit for, that he calls the Trump vaccine from Operation Warp Speed. So that's inconsistent. And the bottom line with Trump is that he didn't, uh, when he had the opportunity, when he was still in office and when the vaccines were first approved to promote you know, the widespread acceptance of this vaccine and promote the efficacy and safety of it, he chose not to. Remember, Vice President Pence did a public show of, of getting the shot, of getting the vaccine. So did Dr. Fauci. So did Second Lady Karen Pence. So did a whole number of other officials in the government. And yet Trump didn't do that. He didn't even let it be known uh, publicly that he had received the shot until after he left office as president. And so Trump's actions have sowed doubt among his supporters about how safe and, and um, 
effective uh, these vaccines are. And, and that's been a very difficult hole to dig out of now. And the Biden administration is obviously trying to promote uh, the vaccines. You see First Lady Jill Biden traveling all over the country, uh, holding events to get people encouraged to take the vaccine, including in a lot of you know red states where Trump is popular. And yet Trump has had very limited uh, public statements about the vaccine, and we've not seen him doing any sort of on-camera uh, appearances or, or you know, events pegged to the vaccine. Perhaps that would be effective if he were to do so. I'm not sure, uh, but the statements that he's made have been very inconsistent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Phil, if I could stick with you for a moment, um, President, former President Trump told you that he had no regrets except for one. Talk about that and, and what you write about. Yeah. So when Carol and I sat down with him at Mar-a-Lago, you know, we wanted to know if he had regrets about his handling of the pandemic. Uh, It was the biggest crisis he faced as president. And, you know, I would argue the biggest crisis any modern president has faced, at least in the last, you know, few decades. Um, And he said no. I mean, 600,000 people died during his presidency from COVID and, and he had no regrets about how he handled it, no regrets about anything that he said, no regrets about any decision that he made. But he did have one regret um, about his presidency in that final year. And it was pretty chilling for Carol and I to hear it. And it was that in the summer of 2020, after George Floyd's death and murder, rather, and the Black Lives Matter protests were going on all around the country, Trump wished he had Uh, He had deployed active duty military troops in Portland, in Seattle, in Minneapolis, on the streets of Washington. He wanted to use military force uh, to combat peaceful uh, domestic demonstrators because he wanted to appear strong. He thought that would help him politically uh, in his reelection campaign. Our reporting for this book reveals that Trump almost every day in this period was pressuring his attorney general, the defense secretary, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, to use a military response to the Black Lives Matter demonstrations. And they resisted at every turn. They said, that's inappropriate. This is not an insurrection. So you cannot invoke the Insurrection Act. Uh, They withstood the president's desires for the military response. But looking back at it now, Trump tells us uh, he wishes he had just pushed through anyhow and as commander in chief issued that order. And it's it you told you said that same point on Washington week and it still takes my breath away that that is his um that is the thing that he regrets. I remember being there on the street in June probably yeah. being the only time I thought I it was better to be outside the White House instead of inside the White House because I got tear gassed along with everyone else so I could say for the record that there had been tear gas deployed when no one was doing anything and it was peaceful and it was that moment that really kind of impacted you right um General Milley's thinking of how how he moves forward I was going to wait to ask you about the, the the sort of politicization of the military but now that you've brought it up um Carol maybe you can can you jump in here and talk a little bit about General Mark Milley, his fears, the issue of, 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 a, of a coup possibly happening under his watch. Yamish, this is um, something that, you know, Phil and I both felt um, really, really worried about as we reported it, um, because we'd not known that General Mark Milley was worried about a group of people around Trump or Trump himself launching a coup. Um, he, starting in that 
crucial moment that you just described that you experienced yourself on June 1, Mark Milley, again, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, was watchful and guarded about President Trump. It was a warning to him that the President of the United States, his commander-in-chief, the person he answered to, uh, was willing to bend the Constitution, was willing to choose an authoritarian move for his own political benefit. And that authoritarianism seemed to grow as the months moved on from summer to fall towards the election. And in um, that time period, Milley vowed to himself and to confidants and mentors that he was not going to let Donald Trump deploy or use what he um, uh, told confidants were the guys with the guns. He was not going to let President Trump get his hands on that in order to sow chaos or distraction and, and make people fear anything about their country. Milley compared in his own, you know, discussions with these confidants and mentors, he compared the way Trump was behaving that fall to the way Adolf Hitler was consolidating power in the 1930s. Again, making people afraid, making them distrust their government, making them feel like he was their savior, especially, you know, in his base. So he and the Joint Chiefs of Staff that he oversees or helps um, advise the of the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, began meeting privately to discuss what would they do if Donald Trump gave them an order that was illegal, uh, unethical, or would be dangerous for the country and the democracy. And they began thinking about slow walking him and blocking him by serial resignation, one by one, slowly, a reverse Saturday Night Massacre, massacre if you will, you know, when, when President Nixon began firing every single one of his uh, Justice Department officials and acting attorney generals in order to get what he wanted when he was under siege. Uh, this is the level of fear that Milley and his his colleagues had at the Pentagon. Remember, Mark Esper gets fired right after the election when President Trump refuses to concede and new unusual people are installed that Milley doesn't know in the Defense Department. And he starts to get quite worried that this this coup could very well be afoot. Uh, if I could stick with you, Carol, you, you talk about Esper's firing, setting off red flags. Uh, talk a bit more about how many red flags were set off there and just how different that we saw so many people, so many people fired from the Trump administration via tweet, we saw, you know, I can never forget James Comey being fired and then followed by that Los Angeles chopper. Um, but the, but Esper was different in a lot of people's minds. Talk about that. You know, it's a fascinating moment. We could go in a lot of different directions about this. You know, we could get out a list, right, of all the people Donald Trump fired in his vindication tour after the impeachment, you know, just started going to town, getting rid of people that he felt had had been disloyal. Well, what they had done is they had testified under oath when subpoenaed, which is complying with the Constitution and the law. But be that as it may, we don't have to go that direction. We can just talk about Esper, which was a pretty dramatic time period. And it goes to this roller coaster moment. The defense secretary is holding on for dear life. In large measure, Phil and I found in our reporting, because he's worried about being replaced by someone who's even um, you know, more afraid of Donald Trump 
and more skittish and willing to go along with whatever Donald Trump says. So he is literally having an argument over the phone multiple times in a row with a good NBC reporter because she's about to break a story that the Secretary of Defense believes will get Trump mad and get him fired, um, you know, too soon, sooner than he'd like. The other thing that's a big worry here is Trump has wanted to fire Esper ever since Esper apologized for walking across that square June 1. Trump has wanted to um, just remove this cancer from his presidency. He hates Esper at this point and has hated him for months. And when the election is arriving, when the election is on the horizon days away, he starts talking about getting rid of Milley and getting rid of Esper. And he is talked out of it by some of his closest friends and family members who say, you could get rid of Esper, but don't get rid of Millie. The guy in the uniform, not a good idea. Looks too rash. Well, it looks pretty rash to fire your secretary of defense as well. Phil, I want to come to you. I mean, those were some wild moments. We're jumping around in time here, but I, I want to go to that idea that former President Trump is living in this alternate reality where he still thinks that the election um, was stolen from him. Take us, take me through and take us through, uh, uh, us here at the club, um, take us all through the president thinking how he, how he continues to hold on to this. I'll say just before, just to limit it, I'll say between January and when he finally leaves office, how what what what's going through the president's mind and what are the guardrails um that keep him from doing some of the, some of the the things that Millie and Esper were were really scared of, of doing you know it's it's so interesting and there really Yamish was an evolution um the night of the election we have some behind the scenes reporting about the conversations Trump was having with his advisors as well as with Rudy Giuliani his you know longtime friend and personal lawyer and Rudy was telling Trump just say you won. I mean, just say, just claim you won Michigan, claim you won Pennsylvania. He, of course, lost both of those states. But the strategy that night became claim victory, just, you know, try to BS the American people. And Trump, of course, on election night went out in that 2 a.m. speech to say, frankly, we won the election uh, when that was not the case. But we also found in our reporting that the morning after the election, Trump had some recognition that he had lost. In fact, he had a conversation with Kellyanne Conway, his senior counselor, uh, where he said, how did we lose to Biden? And, and they had a conversation about it, a rational conversation about Trump having lost the election. And then you fast forward, and as every day moved on, Trump became more and more convinced of the fraud that didn't exist, partly because of what Rudy Giuliani was telling him and Sidney Powell, the lawyer, and Mike Lindell, the MyPillow uh, founder and pitchman, uh, and, and others. They were feeding conspiracies to the president, but he also was unwilling to accept the label of loser. And so it was a convenient kind of exit ramp for him to claim this fraud uh, without having to come to terms with the reality, which is that he had lost uh, in, in a vote pretty decisively, actually, uh, to Joe Biden. And so he just kept trying to mislead the public over and over and over. And we saw this with our own eyes and ears, right? It was in, in his speeches, in his tweets. It all culminated on January 6th with the insurrection that we saw unfold at the Capitol. And yet even as Trump accepted that he was having to leave office, and he did leave office 
you know, nobody had the military didn't have to go in and, and get him out of the White House. He left the morning of January 20th. He still didn't accept uh, the results of the election. And when we went down to Mar-a-Lago at the very end of March to visit with him, this was all so raw and, and in his mind real. It was just an out-of-body experience to sit on the couch across from him and have him tell one lie after another after another about the election. He would tell us in detail about the boxes of ballots that were hidden under a table skirt in Fulton County, Georgia. And when they yelled water main break, some lady pulled all the ballots out and stuffed the machine. I mean, that just didn't happen. That's completely debunked. Uh, No truth there. You know, he talked about how everybody knows he won the state of Arizona. Well, everybody knows that Joe Biden won the state of Arizona. It was a close result in Arizona, but Biden came out on top. And and there was a a recount there that even proved that Biden came out on top. But Trump is so convinced uh, that he was the one who won Arizona and that the numbers had been faked to make the election stolen from him. I mean, it's it's just this dystopian world that he lives in, an alternate reality. And um, to, to hear it out loud in a two and a half hour interview is really startling because it's clear that he has, um, he has said it so many times he started to convince himself of the lie. I mean, it's remarkable that he's still lying about this. It's remarkable that he even began to lie about this. I remember being on the White House lawn at like two o'clock in the morning for PBS NewsHour saying, never in American history have we heard a president claim he won when he lost. That's There are so many immigrants that came to this country for the very reason that other in other countries, there are all sorts of issues with their, their democracy and people saw American democracy as being so, um, while fragile still, was was so solid in the idea that this that we are not the kind of country people thought in their minds. Immigrants told me in my reporting where presidents just come out and say, it doesn't matter, I'm not leaving. So it was a scary moment. Um, and you take us into really amazing detail and in, 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 in talking about kind of what was going through his mind and, and the forces that, that, that kind of supported his ability to even go out there because in some ways I was thinking about it as a reporter he has no shame in this minute in in this endeavor of his to continue to claim that he had that he's won the election Kara I want to come to you we have about 10 minutes before audience questions start so I want to go straight into January 6th what does your reporting tell you about what the president was doing other than we know watching TV but talk us through the president at first maybe being pleased about January 6th, your reporting revealed, and then having to be talked into making a statement. That's right, Yamisha. And it's, um, there's still more to learn than what we learned without a subpoena. But what we learned without a subpoena was pretty shocking. Um, you're right, dead right. He was watching television. He was excited at first, according to people who knew about his events of that day and knew about his reactions. He was excited because he saw, you know, his his supporters charging up to the Capitol to stop the steal, the alleged steal, and to support him. And I always like to say, keep in mind that as he is watching this and still quite almost giddy about their, their storming, they are committing felonies as they charge past a police barricade, as they trespass on property that they don't have a permit to go onto, as they jump onto the Biden inaugural platforms um, with riot gear, with with weapons, uh, with climbing gear, with bear spray. They are committing felonies before there is any real violence. Um, but the president, according to, again, our sources, concludes 
oh crap when shots are fired, when real violence breaks out, but he doesn't do anything. And, uh, you know, as we've said several times, the president is MIA during a period that everyone in America is watching in horror on television. Everyone in America is drawn to their TV, calling their mother, t emailing friends. I mean, law enforcement agents were all texting each other, said, get your guns, we're going to the Capitol. That's how dramatic this moment was. But the President Trump wasn't acting. And what we learned was that his daughter and the chief of staff, so Ivanka Trump and Mark Meadows, began having a series of conversations with the president that didn't really move very quickly. In fact, it took two hours for them to continually persuade him to tape a message to essentially call off the dogs, to tell his supporters that he didn't want violence and he wanted them to stand down and go home. This um, this episode, so so chilling to have the president MIA, is accentuated by a description that was provided to Phil and to me in which Ivanka Trump is described as the president's stable pony. She's brought in to sort of calm down the racehorse and get him down to sort of a safe trot. Uh, eventually, he does record this, this message, which even then wasn't exactly firm and and again, praised his supporters and said he loved them. I mean, it's 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 stunning reporting. Um, Phil, what talk a bit more about what what we know about what the president was thinking now after January sixth, um, and what we know about his actions um, leading into leading into to, to inauguration when it's clear that this is an insurrection. It's clear that his supporters have gone too far. You know, that was clear to all of us who were watching uh, it play out in, in front of us <laughs> on television. Uh, it, it was obvious to the naked eye what was happening, and yet Trump uh, didn't see it the way everybody else did. Um, you know, in, in a couple of days after January 6th, he did not really do public events. Um, he was in a very strange mood inside the White House. There was an effort by... Mark Meadows, Jared Kushner, as well as Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, to try to get him focused in those remaining two weeks of the presidency on his legacy, to have him go on a tour, go down to the border and talk about the border wall, the portions of the wall that had been constructed, you know, go uh, talk about the economy, go just do events to try to burnish your legacy beyond January 6th. And instead, he was pouting around the White House. He was fixated on his pardon power. Uh, to use the the power of clemency, um, a, a long list of people to pardon, and and many that he had considered who he, he didn't end up pardoning. He did end up taking that trip to the border, but it was really the only legacy event that he did in that period. In, instead, his advisors were really on the edge of edges of their seats, wondering what kind of dangerous. Uh, action he might take because they knew his state of mind was not well. Um, he was very uh, bothered by January 6th, not even so much by the, the violence that had occurred, but by what it meant for him, um, what kind of jeopardy it might have put him into because of his role in helping instigate uh, the riot, what kind of exposure it could cause for his family. Um, those were really harrowing days um, in the Trump inner circle and orbit. And it was so worrisome that General Mark Milley and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, had a morning 
a standing morning call where they would get on the phone and compare notes. And they had different vantage points. One was at the Pentagon, one was at the State Department, thinking about sort of our global allies and adversaries, and the other was inside the West Wing with the president. And they would just think about what are the landmines out there? Where could there be trouble? What's the president's state of mind today? What's he doing today? Um, basically, how do we make sure that we land this plane safely on January 20th? And by landing the plane, of course, they meant um, having the peaceful transfer of power and upholding our democracy. Uh, and, and so that was a difficult period for sure. One other thing I want to ask about January 6th, um, and then I'll stick with you, Phil, for for this question, um, and we should say we have about three minutes before audience questions start. Um, talk to me a bit about, about Phil, about how, if we, if we go back to the decisions that were made on January 6th, how General Milley's kind of fear of politicization of the military impacted the response. You know, that's an important one. And, you know, we don't have a clear sense of exactly how that fear of politicizing the military played out in the response. But what we could gather from our reporting is that there was such a reluctance on the part of Milley, but also the other leaders at the Pentagon, to use the military in any political way because of the backlash of what had happened on June 1st with the clearing of Lafayette Square. Remember when when uh, uh, federal agents cleared Lafayette Square, the peaceful protesters out of Lafayette Square, for, and then Trump did his photo op in, with the Bible in front of St. John's Church. That had such a, a, a horrible impact on the military and the sense of separating politics from the military because of the photo op that Millie and other leaders were determined not to ever let something like that happen again. And so our reporting suggests that that is one of the contributing factors to why there was such sort of a slow uh, military response on the 6th and why there wasn't more of a military um, response ahead of the 6th as they started to get some intelligence that there could potentially be violence on Capitol Hill. But that being said, it's not normally the military's role um, to protect the Capitol in a circumstance like that. It, you know, there's, there's the U.S. Capitol Police. There are numerous law enforcement agencies with some purview there. They were, you know, well aware of these threats and, and doing what they could. There were obviously, in retrospect, a lot of red flags um, that went ignored or, or not given the serious treatment uh, that was deserving. But on the afternoon of the 6th, as the rioters were breaching the Capitol, uh, there was a slow and, and sort of lethargic response inside the Pentagon. And you have to imagine that the, the political impact of June 1st played some role in contributing to the slow response. And Carol, my last question before I go to audience questions goes to you. Um, talk a bit about where tomorrow there's going to be the first hearing of the January 6th Select Committee. Your reporting, of course, connects to that committee's work. Talk a bit about who you think maybe should be called as a witness. And also, what are the biggest questions about January 6th that remain that you hope or maybe that we all hope this committee might be able to get to? I'm going to take the second part of that question first, Yamiche. It's it's critical that we get the answers to both. Um, here's some unanswered questions. What was the level of knowledge inside the White House and on the part of the president about the intentions of the people who were organizing the protests that ultimately stormed up the Capitol? You know, as uh, Capitol Police Chief Steve Sun told me uh, fairly soon into the coverage of this, it was clear to him on his TV screens, his live feeds, as he managed this 
conquest of the capital, it was clear to him that there was an organized phalanx of, of individuals. Now we know from the FBI's investigation that some of them were Oath Keepers um, uh, and, and Proud Boys. Um, what level of knowledge did the Trump inner circle, the White House, the president himself have about that group of people and their role? There's not enough information about that. What kind of funding funded these individuals. Now, the second half of your question, um, and um, forgive me, remind me, <laughs> I got I got excited. Oh, the witness list, the witness it's list. It's okay. It happens to President Biden. I ask multiple <laughs> part questions. It's a, it's something I'm trying to deal with, I'm trying to get simple. <laughs> um, who should be testifying in front of this committee? Of course, we know that there are four Capitol Hill police officers that are going to be testifying, but who else do you think should be called? You have this reporting without a subpoena, I should say, that that really um, gives us so much new information about January 6th. But who do you think should be called? You know, the people that I was mentioning earlier who have a front row seat to this, uh, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, Ivanka Trump, his uh, the president's daughter, uh, Roger Stone, who played an interesting role sort of around the edges, Michael Flynn, who early on started talking about how the people needed to take control the decision about the presidency, not the courts. You may remember just days before this, this attack, he was giving voice to that very thing. So I, I think there are a lot of individuals. There's um, also several Secret Service officials that, I mean, have a front row seat as well. Tony Ornato, who was coordinating the movements of the vice president and the president. All of those people, Donald Trump Jr., who was at the rally um, before the Stop the Steal. I think all of those people have insights that would be valuable to understanding what was the inner circle's role and knowledge. And I'm being told I can ask one more question. Um, I'm torn because now I want to ask two. So I'm going to ask two. The first one will go to Kara. I'll go, I'll go to you. You, you talk a, a bit because I feel like I can. Um, one more question for you, which is, where do you see this heading? The thing that sticks with me is that all of this great reporting that you've done, the fears of Mark Milley, they could still happen, right? We could still see a coup. We could still see people try to take over the government. We could still see a sort of Nazi, take, at least attempted takeover of our government. Where do you see this heading? Oh, my gosh. Great question. Glad it was the first, not the second. Um, <laughs> so I wouldn't forget it. Um the truth is that the country is in a really terrible place at the moment. The country's divided. One half of the country believes that Biden was a, was fairly elected and believes the truth. And one group has been encouraged and sold a bill of goods that he wasn't properly elected and the election was stolen. That is that is that hangover is still hanging over the country. Um, I, I think that there are uh, big problems for us going forward with the Republican Party uh, following in lockstep with, with the former president, Donald Trump, in this misinformation campaign that continues. The misinformation campaign that killed Americans, let's be honest, in COVID, telling them they didn't need a mask. Well, now there's a new disinformation campaign, which is, again, to the benefit, uh, it seems to me, uh, it behooves the former president to continue to stoke fear and dis distrust of the government because 
He's not in charge of the government right now. He's their savior again, just as Millie was was frightened. And I would add one quick last thing, which is Phil and I talk a lot about how this book's a history book. We wrote it because we think that's important, but it's not just history, it's current events. This this former president, if he had been more organized, if he had had a more efficient team, he might have pulled off something quite um, blood curdling. And, and it's important for us to remember that it was his inefficiency and his lack of knowledge and his um, and the bulwarks that stood against him that that landed this bad boy safely, as some have said. It, it wasn't because he couldn't do it. It was because he didn't have the capacity, but but somebody could. Um, Carol, it's such a good point that this was landed safely and we still had to kind of live through all of this craziness, including, of course, the violence of January 6th. Phil, I'll come to you. This is something that's way in the future, possibly something we'll be covering tomorrow, 2024. Um, you, I was kind of struck by the idea that in the book... The, the former president doesn't really contradict that much stuff, but he did contradict one anecdote about him being tired during the campaign. What does that tell you about the way that he wants to see himself be seen? And I'm sorry, another combination question. Is he running for president? I mean, so first of all, 2024 is not actually that far into the future. Uh, it, it'll be here before we all know it. Um, is he running for president? He he's running right now to keep that possibility open, right? So he, because he's the leader of the Republican Party, because he's by far the most popular uh, potential nominee among Republicans, because if the primaries were held tomorrow and he were a candidate, he would almost certainly lock up the nomination. He has the luxury of time. So he's not going to have to make a decision about running for president again until probably summer or fall of 2023, which means between now and then, he can do what he wants without uh, the liability of being an actual candidate. And when Carol and I talked to him a couple months back, he made very clear that he wanted in the game. Uh, he enjoys being in the political day-to-day -day fray. He certainly sounded to us like a like a likely presidential candidate. Um, he's probably not going to be satisfied to just be the kingmaker. I, I, you know, he looks at that field of would-be candidates other than him, and he doesn't see anybody else that's as good as him. Granted, he could look out at 300 million Americans and not see anybody else that he thinks is as good as him, because that's uh, the kind of ego that he has. But, you know, nonetheless, I, you know, I, it certainly seems like he's going to run. The, the things that I think would hold him back would be, you know, simply his, his age and health, if he feels like he doesn't have uh, what it takes physically uh, or mentally to run again and, and or or if it or if his fortunes turn right and he he has a genuine risk of losing in a Republican nomination. But as of now, I think he's doing it. And I want to ask you the second part of that question. But as I ask you that, if you're watching on as part of the Commonwealth Club or at the Commonwealth Club, um, please start lining up to ask your question because this we're going to go to your questions as soon as I'm done asking what I think is just a fascinating look into Donald Trump's ego, which is this idea that he didn't want to look tired during the campaign. Tell us about that before the audience starts asking questions. I, I'm telling you, I have to start stop asking combination questions and let people answer one question at a time. So he, 
I mean, we all kind of at this point, after four years of this presidency, I feel like anyone listening to this uh, conversation is is an armchair psychologist expert in Donald J. Trump. So we know that he doesn't want to look tired. He doesn't want to look weak. He doesn't want anybody to think he's anything other than, you know, the healthiest, uh, most vital, uh, vigorous man ever to grace planet Earth. And so, you know, during the campaign, he he was adamant that he not have things on his schedule that would um, that would make him tired or that would make him seem out of wind uh, at his rallies. And in fact, this was a big problem for him when he started to get sick. And of course, we we very soon learned that that he he had coronavirus, COVID nineteen. Um, but he was very concerned about how he would appear physically and about what people might say about his endurance, his stamina uh, at those rallies. Well, I have to tell you, I wish some, I could tell people not to fill my schedule with stuff that I think would make me be tired and, like, and, and look tired. But hey, you know, we're not all. Well, you're high tired. energy tonight, Yamish. So <laughs> right. Um, well, again, thanks so much for answering my questions. So now I know we're going to go to audience questions. Um, what are the audience questions? I know someone else is going to facilitate that. So please take it away. So just to build on the last couple of questions, is there much of a chance that Trump will you know, be the phoenix that rises from the ashes and win the general in 2024, or is there a better chance he'll be in jail? I love that combination question. <laughs> I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a quick whiff at that and just say that we're not speculators, and we certainly are not very good gamblers, so I'm not going to put odds on uh, jail and or um, general election, but as Phil said, he'd be the nominee in two seconds if um, if the primary were held tomorrow. And he he did get a lot of voters and continues to woo them. That's all I think is worth saying. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your books. I've read them the first second they came out. I was curious thank about you. what you think about Jen Psaki and the White House briefing room, because I watch it occasionally, but it appears a little bit almost predictable what she might say. Yeah, you know, um, first of all, uh, to her credit, to Jen Psaki's credit, uh, she has been doing daily briefings uh, almost every day of this presidency, which is something that Trump's press secretaries did not do uh, with the same kind of regularity. And there's a real importance, a public service component to that. Um, it's not only, you know, as reporters, us getting a chance to ask whatever questions we want to ask, but it's her being held accountable to the American people and having to answer for whatever the administration is doing on a given day or the decisions the president has made or, um, you know, other elements of the government. So I just want to say that, I mean, she does sound predictable and practiced and rehearsed, and that's because she's a professional communicator and <laughs> she spends a lot of time studying uh, her brief and, you know, understanding all of those issues and figuring out with her team the best way to communicate them to the public. And so the performance you see now in the briefing room is very similar to what you would have seen under any of Obama's press secretaries or any of George W. Bush's press secretaries. It's a more traditional and and cautious uh, approach from a government leader. It's not the kind of off-the-cuff answers you'd get from Sean Spicer or Sarah Sanders or Kaylee McEnany. So I think what we saw in the Trump years was a true aberration, and Jen Psaki is just returning that role to to the traditions. Hi, thank, 
Thanks very much, and we look forward to having you all back live in San Francisco. Um, I'm wondering what sense, uh, if any, you got about where you could draw a line between what Trump believed of what he said and when he was just saying it and he knew that it wasn't true. I mean, we know we have that little snip from Woodward where he clearly understood what was going on with with COVID and uh, what he said to Woodward at the time was clearly in opposition to what he was saying publicly. But And that seemed to happen all the time, that he was saying ridiculous stuff. And, you know, we wonder, does he believe this nonsense or is it just what he thinks is going to get him what he wants from his base. So I wondered if you if you found lines or ways to discern that. You know, Phil mentioned earlier um, this notion that the day after the election, he had some awareness that he did not win. How did we lose to Biden, right? Um, but I think one of the, uh, again, not to be armchair psychologist, one of the things that took Phil and I, Phil and me aback when we were with him in Mar-a-Lago was the way you know we're trained journalists we're 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 deceptor detectors right and while we're sitting across from him he is physically so committed to the lie from head to toe he does not reveal any um indication that he realizes that these things are bs he just doesn't and that's fascinating as a personality trait um and it doesn't prove that he uh, doesn't believe it or does. I would just say it is an interesting feature of his personality. Many of his aides uh, and and many of our sources um, be- um, basically are not sure a lot of the time whether he was lying or he believed it. And one person I can I will always remember for when we were reporting for the first book said to me, you know, and he'd spent a lot of time with Donald Trump, giving him advice, doing other things for him. He said, you know, he doesn't think he's lying when he's talking. He's just will say when you correct him and say, hey, boss, you know, that that isn't true. He'll just say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah but it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, I'm the big picture guy. It doesn't matter. So in this case, it matters. And it really mattered in 2020. It wasn't a PR game. It was a a life and death game. Hello. Um, Could you kindly share some insights to the moment when he told the Proud Boys to stand by? Is there a through line um, we could make to a pretty big connection there? Yeah, so this was one of those extraordinary comments that he made in, in, uh, I think it was, well, I forget if it was the first or the second presidential debate, but one of those debates, or you know what, I take, yeah, it was either the debate or or the town hall with Savannah Guthrie. My mind is a bit of a, of a mess at the moment, but he said it in a very public forum and it's, it stuck out immediately in the news. I mean, it was seized upon on Twitter and it led a lot of the newscasts right after the event because it was so uh, striking to hear the president of the United States when he was asked to condemn uh, white supremacy and white supremacists instead say say to the Proud Boys, stand by. You know, it was a signal to that element of his base, of his supporters, 
that they should be on guard and that they should be ready. And it was read by people in that community as almost like a call to arms. Uh, and we know that because of the investigations that have been done into the social media conversations, into what the you know chatter was like on sites like Reddit. Um, that's how people interpreted that remark. And you can certainly connect a through line between that and the uh, the the events that occurred after the election. There were a series of well, really two um, big protests here in Washington after the election that the Proud Boys were very active in. And then, of course, January 6th and the insurrection at the Capitol. And I think those remarks from the president, uh, the sitting president of the United States legitimizing the Proud Boys movement and, and telling them to stand by uh, was significant and, and was a really kind of catalyzing event for, for the people who were white supremacists. Well, those were all such great questions. Thank you so much to the audience for asking them. Um, of course, our many thanks to Carol Lennig and Philip Rucker, authors of I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's catastrophic final year. I have it right here. It's in that bookcase um, <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I get off of here. Um, we encourage you to pick up your copy at their new, um, of their new book, um, at your local bookstore. If you would like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts, please visit commonwealthclub.org. Um, and if, I wanted to say thank you so much again to everyone for, for, for listening to this and for allowing us to have this conversation. I'm Yami Shalstendor, um, moderator of Washington Week and White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour. Thank you so much for allowing me to have this conversation, Phil and Carol, with you. We enjoyed it so much, Yamish. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you guys for coming. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.